Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. Blessed, blessed to be pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church and honored to welcome you to worship this morning. God bless you. Uh, First of all, I want to uh, thank uh, Lucas Hughes, who is our cameraman every single week. Most of us in this room don't think about him, but the folks in the overflow, the folks at Franklin and lots of folks elsewhere are becoming very, very dependent upon Lucas and his his ministry. Lucas, thank you. God bless you. Uh, God bless you, Pastor Eric, James Weekly, all of you joining us by video. We love you. God bless you. Open your Bibles to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2. It's an Old Testament book. You might go to the book of Psalms and then start thumbing backwards. You'll pass the book of Job and the book of Esther and into the book of Nehemiah chapter 2. This is the second in a message series entitled, If These Walls Could Talk. We're talking about what to do in those moments in your life when your life just gets stuck, when you're up against a wall, so to speak. What do you do in those particular episodes in your life when all of a sudden your forward motion gets blocked? Life is no longer moving as you hoped it would, as you always dreamed that it would, and you just get stuck. What do you do? Last week we were up against the walls of Jericho, and we said that you obey. You listen to God's voice and you obey. When you don't know what else to do in life, always Always just obey the Lord. Go back to the last thing he said to you and you just keep doing that until he gives you the next step. You simply obey. Always obey him. But what about when you're up against a different kind of wall? And this brings us to the book of Nehemiah this morning. What if it's, it's the wall of your life and it's in total ruins, completely, completely broken down? What do you do then? Well, it's simple. You continue to obey the Lord, but you rebuild Always you rebuild. But what if the broken down wall is somebody else's life? What if the ruins are not so much in your life, but in somebody else's life? What do you do then? That's the situation Nehemiah found himself in. A a little bit of background before we read chapter 2. Remember that the, the, the children of Israel, God's people, had been completely defeated and taken into exile into Babylon. And, and that was a horrible, horrible exile. And much of the Old Testament talks about the sorrow and the suffering of God's people in exile. They were taken, as it turns out, all around the world in, in a terrible kind of scattering of God's people. And they dreamed of going back home, and often they, they sang songs and prayed to go back home. But that was not to be for some number of years. Finally, King Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon, and King Cyrus says that all of the Jews can go home. Now, it's been a generation or so now, and not all of them go home. Understand that. A lot of the Jews scattered around the world, scattered far-flung corners of the earth, they don't have a desire to go home. They're doing pretty well where they are. And that's Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of those Jewish men whose parents, grandparents were perhaps from Jerusalem, but Nehemiah has lived his whole life now in Persia, and he's actually got a very good job. He's very, very prominent in the high court of the king there at Susa. He really has no desire to go home. He's not going home. He is at home. He has a new life, and and it's a comfortable life, but all of a sudden, God begins to work in his heart. God begins to draw him Back to his homeland, back to Jerusalem, where the the walls of the city continue to lie in complete and total ruins. There have been waves of Jews going back home to rebuild, but it's been something like a hundred years now, and they haven't made much progress. Nehemiah begins to care all of a sudden about the folks back home. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we'll pick up in his story, verse 11. Uh, Nehemiah has returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, and this is where we pick up. 
Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to what the word of God will say to you today. Nehemiah speaking. So I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, and over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So though it was still dark, I went up the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The walls were so broken down that he couldn't make a full circle around the city. He had to turn around and come back. Verse 16. The city officials didn't know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how gracious the hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. And they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. Some time ago, I attended a Baptist, a Black Baptist Associational meeting over at First Baptist Woodburn. I attended with the uh, the mayor of Woodburn at the time, who was Chip Jenkins. Chip and I, of course, are buddies. He's a member of our church down at the Franklin campus now. Chip and I, at that particular time in our lives, we had one thing in common. We both had wives who controlled all the money in the household, and so both of us were on an allowance. And I believe at that time, both of us got the same allowance, and it was twenty bucks a week. 20 bucks a week. I'm doing better now, but at that time, 20 bucks a week and and, and Chip too. As it turned out, that particular Sunday afternoon at First Baptist Woodburn, Chip and I went over together, and I happened to have my whole week's money in my pocket. This is why my wife didn't give me much at the time, you understand? I had the whole wad in my pocket, 20 bucks. I had four $5 bills in, in my pocket. I was a rich man. Went into the meeting with, with Brother Chip, and as if you've ever been to a black church, a lot of times they will put all the pastors, if you're a pastor of any kind or any politician, they'll put you on the stage so they can watch you. And, and so they put all the preachers and all the politicians up there together on the stage, so Brother Chip, Mayor Chip and I were sitting there together on the front. It, it was actually a lot of fun, a great, great meeting. Early on in the meeting, they said, we're going to take up an offering, and we're going to start with the fellows on the platform, the preachers and the politicians. Now understand, at First Baptist Woodburn, if you ever go, understand, when they do an offering, they don't bring the plate to you. You have to go to the plate. You have to get up out of your seat and go to the plate with your money in your hand. That's how they take up an offering at First Baptist Woodburn. And Chip and I knew this. And so I immediately thought, well, you know, I'm really thankful, first off, that I had money at all because they're starting with us on the platform. We've got to get up and go put an offering in the plate. How horrible not to have money. Chip Jenkins leans over and says, I ain't got no money. (laughs) How is that my problem? You understand? (laughs) 
He doesn't have any money, but, but I've got money. I've got four or five dollar bills. So I took one out for me and one out for Chip like he's my little boy. I, I give him a five dollar bill. Chip just gets up and he just waves that five dollar bill, goes down and puts it in the plate like it's his. So I saved the mayor of Woodburn that day. We go back to our seats. It was a great meeting. There was preaching. There was singing. It was just awesome. And at the end, they decided to take up another offering. <laughs> another offering. Okay, I have now two $5 bills. This is all the money I've got for the whole week. And I know what's going on beside of me, so I'm just not looking at Chip. It's not looking. <laughs> I take out a $5 bill, one of the last two $5 bills in my pocket. I take one out for myself, and then I look at Chip, and he doesn't say a word to me. He just looks at me like this. I mean, big old eyes. He's just begging with his eyes. Man, I give him my last $5 bill. He just waves it up there and puts it in the plate like it's his, man. I don't understand. How is that my problem that he had no money? By the way, Chip Jenkins still owes me 10 bucks. Ten, 10 bucks. You ever been in that situation? How is his not having money my problem? I am not his mama. You ever think about that? You ever get in that situation where other people's problems become your problem? When other people's messes somehow become your mess? You ever heard of a product called Smell Ease? Or sometimes it's called Super Sorb? You ever heard of it? You may have never heard the name, but when I tell you what it is, immediately you'll be able to recall the smell vividly. You know this stuff. Rich Pond School, back in the day, every time somebody threw up, which was about every 20 minutes in elementary school, the janitor's name was Virgil Lightfoot, and Virgil would come out with this canister of stuff that I always thought was just sawdust. But it was smell ease or super sore, whichever you want to call it. And he would sprinkle that on somebody else's vomit. He had to clean up other people's vomit all the time. That was Virgil's job. I don't know what else he did, but he did that an awful lot. And let me say, he did not get paid enough. I would not want that job. I don't necessarily like to be the one to clean up other people's messes. It's not my mess. I'm not your mama. But Virgil Lightfoot and my mama have cleaned up an awful lot of messes after me and everybody else. Sometimes it does become your responsibility. Sometimes you do find yourself stepping into somebody else's mess to clean it up. It's interesting how that happens because it happened to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was on the job one day, and he had a great job, an an awesome job. He was one of the highest men in the cabinet of the king of Persia, King Cyrus of Persia, in the capital city of Susa, which was 900 miles from Jerusalem. 900 miles. Chances are Nehemiah had never been to his native land. His parents, his grandparents were from Israel, from Palestine, from Jerusalem perhaps, in the same way that my grandparents were from Germany. I mean, that's just where his roots are. But now his life is in Persia. His life is in Susa. He has a job. I suppose he has a family. He has a very, very comfortable life. Very comfortable. 
Now, he's vaguely aware, perhaps, of all of the trouble that they have back in Jerusalem. He knows what a big deal it was when King Cyrus said that all of the Jews could return home. Nobody was keeping them prisoner anymore. Nobody was keeping them as slaves or captives. They were all released to go home. And they started going home in waves. But as they would return home, all they found was rubble. The war that brought the defeat of their nation, the war that brought the defeat of their army and that led all of the children of Israel into exile, that war was devastating. Completely obliterated the walls of the city, obliterated the temple, obliterated their homes. There was nothing left. First wave went back and they made it their priority to rebuild the temple and they got started on the temple, but, but like a lot of people, like a lot of us, their commitment kind of came in, in spurts. And, and sometimes they went to work, and sometimes they didn't work. And it seemed to take forever to get the temple rebuilt. And it seemed to take forever to get homes reestablished. And now it's been something like a hundred years, and they're still rebuilding. Still rebuilding, apparently. At work this particular day in the high court of the king of Persia, Nehemiah has some buddies who come in, his brother and some other acquaintances. We really don't know who they were. All we know is that they had been traveling, and they had been back to Palestine. They'd been back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah just asks, what's it like there? What's going on there? How, how is it going back in Jerusalem? And his brother says, it, it's not good. As a matter of fact, it, it's as bad as it ever was. I don't know. We have no idea if Nehemiah had ever thought much about Jerusalem up to this point. We don't have any idea. He had never made any effort to go back. We know that much. He was there in his life. He was comfortable. He's doing okay. But something happens on this particular day when he hears the news from Jerusalem. It totally messes him up. In a good way, I would say, but it it totally messes him up. Now, honestly, if it were you or me or anybody else, it would be very easy to say, my goodness, that's too bad. It's really too bad about all the problems they're having in Jerusalem. It's too bad that after this hundred years, nobody's been able to put the walls back up. I mean, that's too bad. It's probably about a three-month job for a good group of workers, but somehow a hundred years isn't enough. That, that's just, that's too bad. That's awful. I, I hate to hear about that. That's probably how most of us would respond because that's how everybody else responded in Nehemiah's day, in his life. The brother, the friends, the ones who had gone and seen, they came back and said, it's a cry and shame. It's just a cry and shame what it's like back in Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's a cry and shame. But they didn't cry. Do you understand? They didn't cry. They didn't seem all that moved by it. They came back and went on with their lives. But there was something that started happening in Nehemiah's heart. In his own words, he says that God had begun to put something in his heart. But, but at first it was not pleasant. You need to understand that. What God began to lay on Nehemiah is what I would call a, a burden. It was, it was a burden. Nehemiah began to find in his heart a love for Jerusalem, for the city he'd probably never seen. He began to 
began to really love his people and to begin to love his God. And it really began to mess him up that his city was in ruins. And it really began to mess him up that God's name was becoming a joke. That God himself, somehow, his reputation was being maligned because people would look at, at, at God's people and he would see God's people in, in total disgrace and therefore assume that their God had no power or that their God was not a God to keep his promises. It was God's name becoming a joke and that's something Nehemiah could not bear. He loved the Lord. He began to love his people again. And he began to love enough to care. Do you understand? He began to love enough to care. There are lots of people who say they love a lot of people and love a lot of things, but very few of us love enough to care. Nehemiah began to love enough to care, and he began to care enough to cry. Read chapter 1. He hears the news and then he begins just to cry. He weeps. It messes up his whole life. Do you understand that? This burden now that God begins to lay on his heart, it messes him up. Messes him up. Because he cares enough to cry. And he cries enough to pray. He begins to pray and fast. And this goes on for months. Understand. Months. Finally, he prays enough to want to do something. You ever experienced anything like that? Have you ever had a burden laid on your heart like that? Because it's important. It's important. In my experience, this is how God helps you understand what you're supposed to do with your whole life. This is how God helps you understand what's important in your life. It becomes the things that, that burden you, the, the real things, the important things. I, I know, I know some of you are really burdened about the bats or whether or not he's going to pick anybody or leave them all in Vegas. I pray he leaves them all in Vegas. We become burdened sometimes about things that should be no burden, things that really have no weight, have no importance, and yet we often do not have our hearts broken by the things that break the heart of God. Nehemiah could have easily said, what does it matter to me? What does it matter to me that the walls of Jerusalem are in ruins? What does it matter to me that the hillbillies back home can't manage to build a wall? That's not my problem. It does not matter to me. But don't you understand, it matters to God. And because it matters to God, it begins to matter to Nehemiah. It perhaps shouldn't be his problem, but it becomes his problem. Have you ever experienced anything like this? Ever had your heart begin to be burdened and broken for problems that aren't yours, for people that you just begin to love? Have you ever experienced that? Because this is how you begin to understand what your purpose in life is. What breaks your heart? And if nothing breaks your heart, then why is your heart so hard? It was a burden. And honestly, it just sort of messed him up. It got to the point where at work, even at work, the king would say, Nehemiah, what's bothering you? There's something wrong. Obviously, Nehemiah, there's something on your mind, something on your heart. What is it? Everybody notices Nehemiah's life is messed up now with a burden that's going to change everything. What breaks your heart? What burdens your heart? For Kelly and Trisha Lawrence, it was the orphans in Honduras. 
a burden enough to eventually leave their whole lives and go do something. You see, they loved enough to care and cared enough to cry and cried enough to pray and prayed enough to do something. Have you ever experienced anything like that? For Frank and Carol Jarbo, it's the historical reenacting community spread out all across the United States. They love enough to care and care enough to cry and cry enough to pray and pray enough to do something, to go, to sell their house, to do whatever it takes to get out there and reach those people. Have you ever experienced a burden like that? Now, it might not be for Honduras or for some group out there. It might not be that for you. For me, it wasn't a group that far away from home at all. For me, it was the people of Woodburn Baptist Church. I I developed a burden for the people of Woodburn Baptist Church years ago, and it messed me up. Do you understand? I really wanted to be an an artist, really wanted to be a painter. I have a bachelor in fine arts. I I have a studio in my house. I would rather be painting on a lot of days. Do you understand that? You probably don't. Because honestly, I'm not really a painter like that. That's not where my burden is. I don't lay awake at night thinking about art. I lay awake at night thinking about you and, and Christ's work in your life. I have a burden on my heart for you. And this is how I discerned what God's will for my life was. My heart breaks for you. To this day, my heart breaks for you. People say, Brother Tim, how do you know everybody's names? I don't know how in the world you know everybody's names. You know how I learn names? I take your names before God in prayer all the time. I have a burden for you. Standing here preaching right now, but in my heart, I remember that this is the two year anniversary of Emily Long's death. I was her pastor. Last night, I didn't sleep all night because all I could think about was two years ago being in the hospital room there with Vernon and Teresa and Chelsea and, and Emily. I I don't know how to let that stuff go. I I don't know how to get out from under the burden. And honestly, I don't want to. Because that's the funny thing about the burden that God lays on your heart. It really will mess up your life in some ways. It will break your heart. You'll find yourself taking on other people's burdens and taking on other people's problems. You'll find yourself wading into other people's sorrow and other people's messes. You'll find yourself all of the sudden absolutely obsessed with something far away. Something that doesn't even have to concern you. But because it concerns God, it becomes your burden. Have you ever experienced anything like that. Because honestly, I think this is what holds our church back. We don't have enough people with a burden. We don't have enough people whose hearts are broken for the things that break the heart of God. We don't have enough people yet who really lose sleep over the fact that fewer than one person out of five in Franklin and Simpson County goes to anybody's church. Fewer than one in five. For every one person sitting in church and all over Simpson County today, there are four people who never ever go, who may not have even heard the name of Jesus. Does anybody care about that? Does anybody care about the children in the housing authority? Does anybody care about the the families in the trailer park across the street from our church? Does anybody care? Because my hunch is until we get that kind of burden for people, people and their problems, problems that aren't necessarily ours, concerns that perhaps don't concern anybody else, but they begin to somehow concern us. Problems. 
pray to God that you get a burden for somebody, not yourself. Pray to God that you begin to have a heart that's breaking for something that matters. Something that's important. Something that will matter for eternity. Pray to God that you get burdened. Pray to God that you stop sleeping so well every night. There are people in sorrow and people in suffering. How can you not care? How can you not care? Nehemiah heard about the folks back home. He didn't know those people, their ancestors, I guess. Morons can't manage to build a wall in a hundred years. It's their problem. How is that his problem? It, It just becomes his problem. Not that many other people lose sleep over it, but he loses sleep over it. His brother, his friends, they could go to Jerusalem, see it firsthand, come back and talk about it. They could talk about it, but don't you understand, talking's the easiest part. Talking's the easy part. People have been talking about rebuilding Jerusalem for a hundred years. Talking about it. Interestingly, Nehemiah doesn't talk about it to anybody but God. Do you see that? He doesn't talk. Standing there before the king one day in his job, the king says, Nehemiah, what is it? Nehemiah fires off a, a prayer very quickly to God, silently his heart, and then he tells the king what's on his mind. And it's amazing. The king just says, go. Go. Whatever resources you need, whatever it's going to take to connect the dots from here to there, you just go. And suddenly Nehemiah goes. It's, it's 900 miles in the ancient world. You've got to understand, there are no frequent flyer miles. There is no easy way to get there. This is not an easy thing. But 900 miles, months and months and months later... Nehemiah finds himself in Jerusalem. He doesn't talk to a soul. See, this is how he's different from you and me because I'd be talking about it. I mean, y'all know me. I, I run my mouth constantly. I rarely have an idea that I don't say out loud immediately. And, and that's just me. And it's probably a weakness of mine because Nehemiah is different. This burden that God lays upon his heart, he carries it. And he carries it faithfully and he carries it privately. He simply bears it just between him and the Lord. He bears that burden and he doesn't talk about it. We talk all the time, don't we? We talk about so many things. We talk about planting 20 churches by the year 2020. That's really exciting. You know what? We talk about it so much, it almost feels like we're doing it. But I'm not sure we're making a lot of progress. You understand that? Talk is not the same thing as doing. And sometimes we spend so much energy talking, we talk so much that we actually feel like we've done something. We use up all the energy that we would have to do something by talking. By the time we've talked it out and formed a committee and hashed out the budget and dragged it through five business meetings, we're too tired to think about it anymore and we quit. Talk something to death. Nehemiah doesn't even talk. He just goes in the dark, in the night. He goes, and that man can see more in the night, in the dark, than thousands of people had seen before him in the daytime. Do you understand? He could see something. He walked in that rubble, 
and that rubble was other people's rubble. Do you understand? He was walking in the middle of somebody else's mess, but God was making it his mess and his responsibility. And he bore that burden all the way to Jerusalem and all the way around that town that night, and he just walked and he looked. There's something about carrying a burden like that. And there's also something about when you tell people. Nehemiah didn't tell anybody for a long, long time. I think there's wisdom in that. We talk too much. But there's also something about sharing with other people what God's put in your heart. It's a hard thing to do. It's a really difficult thing. Some of you right now, in the sound of my voice, God's put something in your heart. And you don't even know how to talk about it. You don't know how to begin to tell people And you're afraid to tell people because once you tell people, all of a sudden you become responsible for it. Once you begin to say out loud what God is saying in the privacy of your heart, all of a sudden you become responsible for it, accountable in a different way. There's a part of me that sometimes wishes I'd never said out loud the 2020 vision because now everybody expects us to do it. It's hard when you're accountable. It's hard once you come out and say, this is what God is saying because once you say it, then there's a certain accountability to do it. And once you say it out loud, you open yourself up to people who are going to think you're crazy because you understand there's not a lot of difference between an idea that's crazy and an idea that God gives you. The only difference is if God is in it, it's not crazy. But for people who don't know God, it still just looks crazy. And honestly, it'll sound crazy to people who don't get it, and nobody else is going to get it. What God puts in your heart, he's put in your heart. And you'll be very, very blessed if you find very many people at all who ever understand why you want to do what you do. Their heart doesn't break the way your heart breaks, and you just got to understand that. Nehemiah does not go out and engage the importance of God's vision in terms of how many people want to go along with it. That's not even a part of his equation. He just goes because it's his burden. It's his burden, and he's got to do something. He's just got to do something because the burden is going to crush him if he doesn't pursue the vision. You can't wait for other people to come along and begin to support your ministry. You can't wait for other people to come along and come along beside you. You can't wait for that. If the burden is on your heart, if the vision is in your mind, then you've got to follow the Lord. You've just got to go. Once you say it out loud, all of a sudden you become open to what everybody's going to say and they're going to talk about you. And some people are going to think that you're wasting time and wasting resources. Some people will think you've gone off the deep end. Just let them think what they think. Because they don't have in their heart what God's put in in your heart. So he doesn't say a word to anybody. He just surveys that city and he walks those walls and he walks along that rubble, and, and, and it's just a disaster. It's, it's a disaster. He can't even walk the donkey through the rubble. He eventually has to turn around and go back. That's what he's rebuilding. It takes him months and months and months to ever get to the point of telling anybody what he wants to do. But by the time he tells them, don't you understand, he's got something from God. He has a plan. He has a clearer picture. It's still kind of a sketchy vision, absolutely. But Nehemiah is a brilliant man, a very, very ordinary man, but he's a man with a burden. And don't ever underestimate what God can do with a man or a woman with a burden, with a vision. 
It's not enough just to have a vision, though. Do you understand that? It's not enough just to be willing to work hard for a vision from God. Honestly, that's not enough. You've got to do what Nehemiah does. You've really got to love enough to care and care enough to cry, cry enough to pray. And it's in those prayers that God will begin to show you his will. And honestly, you've got to hear from God. You've got to understand what God wants done. You've got to do God's work. It's not enough just to work hard. Our church works hard. We work way hard. The question is, are we doing God's work or our work? You've got to do God's work, and you have to do it in God's timing. Nehemiah doesn't fly off and and go and and get started. He just waits. He just waits. And it's hard to wait pregnant with the burden, but you've just got to wait for God's will and God's work and God's timing. You've got to wait for that. You've got to know that you're doing God's work in God's time and in God's way. It's not enough just to do it. Not enough just to work hard. You've got to do God's work the right way. And that's what Nehemiah does. God's work in God's way. And then he gathers the people and he speaks to them finally. Verse 17, he says, Now I said to them, You know very well what trouble we are in. It's we. He's 900 miles from where he started out, but it's, it's we. It's our trouble. It's our wall. It's our task. There is no longer a, a, a me and, and a them. It's, it's we. Nehemiah has not come now to clean up somebody else's mess. It's, it's his to clean up. It's not somebody else's problem. It's now his problem. You know full well, he says, what trouble we're in. And they get to work. The question's for you today. What walls around your life are laying in ruins? Some of you, I know, it's your life, and I get that, and I understand that. You've got to rebuild. You have to rebuild. But honestly, sometimes the most important thing to do when your own life is in shambles is to stop looking at your life and look around you. Sometimes the smartest thing to do is give away what you need yourself, what you yourself need most. And if what you really need is somebody to come alongside you and help rebuild your life, maybe the smartest thing for you to do is just get up out of the ruins of your life and go and help somebody else rebuild theirs. Maybe what you should do is stop looking so much at the problems in your life and begin to let your heart be broken by somebody's problems that aren't yours. What, what is it that, that breaks your heart? Is there anything at all that, that grabs you like that? Do you care a lot about the children in Franklin? Do, do you care about anybody? Do you care about our own teenagers? Do you care about the senior adults at, at Woodburn Baptist Church? Or do you care anything at all about the young man that tried to attempt suicide in our neighborhood on New Year's Eve? Do you care at all about these people? Is there anything that ever breaks your heart? Because honestly, if your heart doesn't, pray, doesn't break, there's something profoundly wrong with your heart. There's some disconnect. God's not reaching you. You're not letting him begin to speak and guide and move you. There's something wrong if your heart doesn't crack open for the things that that God's heart cracks open over. Do you understand? There's something profoundly wrong if you don't love something enough to care, somebody enough to care. 
There's something wrong if you don't love something, someone enough to really care about them and want to make a difference and, and care enough to cry. Do you ever, ever shed a tear over anybody that's not yourself? And do you ever cry enough, cry long enough to suddenly your tears become prayer? Do you ever begin to take these things to God and ask God what he wants done and how you can be a part? Have you ever prayed long enough till you reach the point where you're ready to do something? God, help us. Because Woodburn Baptist Church is largely a church filled with people with no burdens, no burden, no broken hearts, no tears being shed for the lost. Uh, Sorry to say that, but some of us simply don't seem to care. If we cared about the lost, then we would have people getting saved here. Do you understand? There are 300-something of you and more at the Franklin campus or hundreds of us who gather in worship today and hear this message. Do you understand? Hundreds of us are going to go back to work and go back to school, and we're surrounded by people who need Christ. And if very many of us were ever, ever sharing Christ, then those people would be coming to Christ. Where are the people that should be coming to Christ? Who are the people around you whose lives will stay in ruins until you begin to care enough to do something? Till you begin to let your heart be burdened. Till you begin to accept that other people's problems might indeed become your problem. What do you do when it's not your life in ruins? What do you do when it's somebody else's life that's stuck? Somebody else whose life has been obliterated by sorrow or suffering. What do you do? You love enough to care. And you care enough to cry. And you cry enough to pray, and you pray enough to do something. Do something. Pray with me. Broken people all around us, Lord. Our kids at South Warren High School, South Warren Middle School, Rich Pond, Franklin Simpson, Bowling Green. World full of kids, Lord. Elementary school, middle school, high school. Lost kids. Lost kids. Lord, we see them in the halls. We see them in our classes. Sometimes, Lord, we see the cuts on their arms. And we see the tears in their eyes. And we see the dazed look in their face and it doesn't seem to matter to us. Lord, we watch the news and we see of trouble in places all around the world. We hear about other people's children, Lord, who are orphaned and sick and starving. Lord, we find out that there are places in Warren County that, that have no, no witness for the gospel and no one to care for the poor and No one to care for the sick. We see people at work, Lord, people in our own families sometimes whose lives are so broken by addiction or by perversion. We just go on with our lives, Lord, as if it doesn't matter. Because, God, it doesn't matter to us. 
Our hearts are so hard, it just doesn't matter to us that, that other people are lonely, that, that, that other people are guilt-ridden, that other people's marriages are collapsing, Lord. It doesn't matter to us. God, help us. Because though it may not matter to us, we know it matters to you. And because it matters to you, then Lord, it's got to matter to us. Oh God, let our hearts be broken by the things that break your great heart. Oh God, disturb us in our comfort. Give us sleepless nights and tear-filled eyes. And Lord, give us hearts that burden and break for the suffering and sin of others. Oh God, our lives are good. The walls of our lives are standing strong, but other people live in rubble. Help us, Lord. Help us to have the burden that you would place in our hearts. Place it, Lord, in our hearts. Help us to love and care and cry and pray and move to do something. Whatever it costs us personally, if we have to get up and move, sell our house, change jobs, do without, Lord. Help us to go, to do, to serve, to do whatever it takes to rebuild the broken walls of a world that you died for. Jesus, you loved enough to die. So, Lord, let us give our lives for the people in the world that you loved so much. Break our hearts, Lord. Break our hearts that we might be useful to do your work in a world that is broken. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.